I want to open us up in prayer tonight. I ask that y'all be praying for me that I would be clear in delivery and that um, that we would uh, be blessed by God through His Word. Um, God's Word is going to be uh, kind of central to the discussion tonight. Um, so with that in mind, I want us to just uh, open up in prayer uh, that God would speak to us tonight. Let's pray. Lord, as I come to you again, um, I just ask that you would seal my lips, that I would speak nothing of myself. Um, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the the effect that, that your word coupled with the power of your Holy Spirit in my life over the last decade plus has uh, taken me from places that I never then realized that I was to places that I never would have anticipated going. Um, Lord, and I can't uh, wait to see what else you have in store for me, what else you have in store for this church. Lord, what you have in store for us ultimately as we spend an eternity with you. Uh, I pray that as I, that as I open your word up tonight, as I preach your word, um, that, that the truth of your word would be fundamental to us and the importance of your word um, would be something that we could not escape and that we as individuals and we as a church would cherish your word, that we would not lay it aside as though it was something that was old and outdated. Um, Lord, and as we saw this morning, though it is filled with difficult things that we must wrestle with, when we do, oh, what beauty we find in the truth of your word. So I pray that we would be a people who love your word, that we are not ashamed of your word, um, that we do not avoid the difficult places in your word, because as I've found over the years, it, it seems to be those places that are the hardest to wrestle and fight with that uh, that tend to give up the greatest reward to our souls and our lives whenever we spend time with them. So I just ask that as a church that we would become more and more a church who fall in love with the truth of your word and fall in love with you through it. Lord, lead us in your word tonight. It's in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Okay, so the last couple of... Uh, sermons, we've been focusing on sin, and primarily we've been looking at how sin has an effect on our lives of suppressing truth, right? Last week, the focus was more on the Jews and how the Jews had, especially in this day and time, suppressed the truth about God's Word as to what it was supposed to do, and it kind of shifted it and transformed it into something that, that it really was not intended to be. Right. They've you they've because of their sin suppressed even the truth of God's word so that we see and up to this point, we've we should be coming to the conclusion that it is not about the knowledge that we have in our heads alone that causes us to live lives free of sin. Right. So if if anything that you've gotten out of the last few sermons, the one thing that I want you to to take away with you is that it is not, it has never been, and it never will be mere understanding of God's Word that empowers you to change yourself. So when we approach God's Word, we do not approach it in that way, right? We do not approach it in, well, if I just knew as much as Dustin, right? Like, if, how many passages of text did we go through this morning? And how many of us probably look at that and we're like, I didn't even know all that stuff was in there. And the fact that it was tied together so masterfully, and, and I give you props, man, I was sitting back there like, woo, I eat that up. But here's the thing, here's the thing. That alone will not change who you are. Knowledge alone will not change us. That's the problem that the Jews had. The Jews knew what sin was because God had shown them through His Word what sin was. And that could not change them. Because you cannot change yourself. Do you hear me? Do you, under, do you understand this? 
I want you to get something when I say that also that's going to be made manifest and, and, and extraordinarily clear through this study. Right? Is that if you have God in you, right? If Christ is working through the Holy Spirit in you as a Christian, you will move forward in your walk in a way that is unexplainable apart from the Holy Spirit. Right? And this is what Scripture calls the fruit of the Spirit. Right? You can go to Galatians, you can read about the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians, one thing that I want us to get um, is that it's not only head knowledge, right? It is not only head knowledge. And in some cases, I would say it's less, less so about head knowledge than it is God intervening on our behalf, right? So I, I, I feel like sometimes, especially after we, like, like I say, Dustin's message this morning, like I was like, I, I've been chewing on that all all day today. So I don't want to downplay like when someone gets up and preaches God's word and digs and dives down deep because that is beautiful, that is amazing, and we should seek for that in our own lives. But one thing that I find too is that I've had cases after I preach that 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 I've had people come up to me and that they have been more blown away at what I knew than then I think what I hoped would come out of it is the power of God's Word itself. And Dustin will testify to this. Every preacher we have in here will testify to this. Is that we do not want you to be amazed by what we know. We want you to share in the beauty of what's found in God's Word. Right. So being amazed or blown away by what we know will fail us if there's not something moving Within us, if God does not move, then we will not be moved. And this is what should be clear to us in the opening chapters of Romans as we kind of dig into this is that we see a people who have the very truth of God before them and all it could do was condemn them. Right. So as Christians, we need and we, in fact, as Christians have something more than just knowledge in our head. God is supernaturally working within us, right? So I want us to just keep that in mind as we press forward in God's Word tonight. We're going to be in chapter 3, or yeah, chapter 3, verse 1. So at this point, all that Paul has said, and, and, and I'm just going to read the last part of chapter uh, 2, where I'm going to read from 28. It says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not for man, but from God. I read this to say that all that Paul, if you were to go back and review all that we've looked at, especially the places that he's touched on the Jews, Paul has said enough here at this point to offend most Jewish listeners who would have been listening or reading this letter. Right? So what Paul's about to do in this next little piece of Scripture is he's going to step back and he's going to address some of the places in which he knows that his Jewish readers would be like, hold on, I got, I got issue with that, Paul. We're going, to have to, we're going to have to go back and look at some Scripture because I'm thinking you're taking stuff out of context, right? Like Paul's at that point in this discussion about the problem of sin that he's now going to step back for a moment and address a couple of key questions that the Jews at this time would have asked because their minds, well, what have we been talking about over the last couple of weeks? The sin has suppressed some big truths about God and what God is doing and about God's truth, right? So that's where we're at in the Scripture now. We're at the point where Paul is going to be addressing some of the questions uh, that his Jewish readers uh, would uh, be asking at this point. I'm going to read you off. Uh, I've got a couple of notes here. There's four questions that we're going to look at tonight. I'm going to read them to you, and then we'll look at the text itself. We're going to be in chapter 3, 1 through... We'll probably end at verse 9, but next week we'll probably start at verse 9. So... Um, 
chapter 3, 1 through 9. These questions are going to come out of this. Um, It would appear at this point as though Paul has said everybody is on an even playing field, right? If we look at the text that we've kind of gone through over the last couple of weeks, Paul's essentially, in many ways, shot down the ideas that the Jews are somehow a special people, right? Or a privileged kind of people. So the first question that Paul is going to need to address is what advantage has the Jew, right? And and whenever I read this and whenever I look at it, the way that I word it, in my own mind, is why did God bother with Israel to begin with? Right? As y'all, as y'all read the Gospel and you look back at, old, at the Old Testament and you see Christ come on the scene and you see more than half the Jewish people just fall away. There's just a tiny remnant of people that start following Christ in the New Testament that come from the Jewish way of living. Most of the Jews don't accept Christ. Right? It would seem that God almost threw out the old and, and, and started something new. The question here is, why would He have bothered with the Jews to begin with if there was not some special privilege set or given to the Jews? Right? What was the purpose of the nation of Israel? Or what is the purpose? Right? As Paul's addressing this in text, the Jews like, well, why do we even care? Right? Why are we even doing this thing? Right? Let's go back. The Jew would say, well, let's go back and look at Abraham. Let's go back and look at just how special all these people are throughout our history. Let's look at all of our descendants and look at the importance of each and every one of them and how God picked them. Right? And the sinful part of the Jew or part of us would say that God was doing this picking because there was some goodness to be found in these people that was found in them, that was found in my heritage, that's found nowhere else. So God selected Abraham because Abraham was somehow special. Instead of Abraham being special because he was selected by God. Right? And not the other way around. So what's the advantage of the Jew? The next question that we're going to ask, which sounds similar, but it is, it is different. What's the value of circumcision? Right? Circumcision today, we do circumcision just because it's, you know, we just do it. Right? But it was very much an important part, and to this day is an important part of the Jewish way of life. Right? There's lots of rules uh, kind of set around it. So, so the, the question that they would ask is, well, what value then is there in circumcision? If the Jews aren't special, why did God give us this sign for what it looks like to be a Jew? Right? So those, those are two questions. Um, another question that would come up, and, and this one to me is, Really one of the bigger ones that, that I have as I approach the text. And I think Paul also uh, struggled with this in his coming to grips with what's now happening in God's redemptive plan. Is, well, what about all the unfaithful Jews? What about all the Jews that up until the point that Christ came on the scene were in, right? They were kind of part of it. Like they were the special chosen people of God. Well, what about all of them that just fell away, that ignored? Like, how, how, I, I can't put my mind around the fact that God would choose a people and then leave the large majority of those people. Right? Like that's a problem that needs to be addressed and needs to be answered. And Paul's going to, he's going to answer it slightly here and then he's going to spend a lot of time uh, later on in the book addressing that. Uh, the fourth question uh, is going to be one that, that we're going to spend a short amount of time on, um, even though it's, it's really a quite large chunk of text. It's five, uh, six, seven, and 8 that kind of addresses this. Is if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, then how can God find fault? Now I want to walk you through the idea or the thought about what this question means, right? Here's the truth, is that if you place me here and Christ here, and you examine both of our lives, what will be known clearly about the two of us, the differences between us? One very clear thing would be that Christ's life is holy, and my life is not, right? So when we compare Christ and we look at what holiness is, what we in fact find is that we can 
see how holy He is in some ways by seeing how unholy we are. This idea that, that God's wonder and majesty is set with the backdrop of the darkness and depravity of man. That when you look at humankind, when you look at mankind, and then you see God for who He is, that you can see God more clearly in all of His wonder and all of His glory and all the attributes of who He is because of, in some ways, how sinful and fallen we are. Case in point, how would we know that God was just had no one ever fallen? Do y'all see what I'm saying there? God is a just God, yes. How would you know that He was just had no one ever sinned? Right? He's He's a kind God, correct? How would we know God to be kind if... There was never a reason or a purpose for Him to be kind to someone because everyone just earned that kindness, right? If I'm a good person, you just, you'd be good to good people, right? We see it as something special when we're good or kind to someone who is in no way deserving to us. How would we know His grace or His mercy had not sin happened? Do y'all see this? Do y'all see and understand how that we can know God more clearly and deeply with the backdrop of human sin and depravity than we could have otherwise? Right? Do y'all get that? Do Do y'all see that? Now the question that would arise from this is if God can be made more spectacular because of our sinfulness, then how could He hold us at fault because of that sinfulness? Do y'all follow me? Do do y'all see what I'm getting at? And do you also see how that is a sinful thing to consider? That God somehow needs me and my sin to highlight His holiness. Right? So we're going to see that Paul pushes that aside fairly quickly. He addresses it, but he's going to push it aside fairly quickly, and he's going to show us that this is a very sinful and fallen way of looking at God and all that's taking place. So there's a truth to be known there, though, is that we will in eternity praise a lamb who was slain. Right? See, sometimes I don't know that that we get that. Right? You're going to praise... I'm going to say it again. You're going to praise for eternity a lamb who was slain. Now ask yourself this question. Are you going to, am I going to be by Shane 10,000 years from now? And am I going to ask Shane? Now Shane, I know we call him the lamb that was slain. Why again was he slain? And what again is slaying? Because slaying seems like a very sinful thing. Right? Because we act and like we're gonna, we're gonna be memory wiped of everything except we say then that we're gonna praise the lamb that was slain. Right? I'm gonna tell you this is that when you get into eternity, that all that has happened here is gonna highlight the holiness and goodness and fullness of who God is. That is a truth that you can see in the fact that we praise a slain Savior. Right? And that's not going to be memory wiped. Right? Something bigger and more beautiful and more full will be seen by our eyes. Right? So this is a question that, that, that Paul addresses here. If our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, then how can God find fault? Right? So we're going to start now addressing these uh, one by one. I want y'all to think with me tonight, okay? So I'm going to be asking questions along the way. And y'all feel free to answer back. Don't feel like, well, I might not answer it right. If you don't answer it right, I'll tell you. Or I'll ignore your response. (laughs) Hmm? I think some of these things that we can see dimly, right? Now, we're not going to have full and complete knowledge and understanding of these things. But God has given us enough truth that we can, that we can grasp at things 
through His Word and know enough. Like The knowledge that God's giving us in His Word is to lead us to Him, right? And ultimately, in eternity, we'll have plenty of time to find out depths of things, though we'll never explore the full depths of who God is. We can, through God's Word, explore into these things so that we can get a, a, a grasp on them. So the first question Paul opens up with in chapter 3, verse 1. And we're going to read the first two questions. We're going to read how he answers both of those. And then we're going to kind of unpack it. Right? So chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Quickly, let's notice that in verse 2, he starts off much in every way. Right, we've spent a good time before we got into this study digging into who Paul is, right? Where he came from, and many of these little excerpts that we're going to find him taking, where he kind of sidesteps and addresses the Jews. He's doing this because he himself has wrestled with these things, asked himself the same questions that he's going to be now posing through this book, right? So Paul has wrestled with these things, and he feels as though he's come to a good conclusion with them. Now there's some of the writings that we're going to find towards the center of this book that are going to be difficult for us to wrestle with, um, but Paul delivers in this, in this book to the Romans um, what I would say is, is the, the best laid out in all of Scripture from start to finish understanding of the gospel and in this he's addressing these places where the jews would have questions because it would seem to the sinful truth suppressing mind as though god did something that he should not have done right or that somehow for god to have now done this he's abandoned a whole a whole group of people and we're going to find that that's uh that that's uh well in some ways true in some ways not true and we'll we'll address that as we get there Uh, 3-1 again. Then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way to begin with. Notice also as we go through this, and I'm stopping a lot here. Notice also he says to begin with and then he lists a one thing. Right? (laughs) Okay? He says to begin with. And then he's only going to list one thing out here. Now, we're going to actually go after we read the one thing that he lists, and we're going to look further on in the book where he actually continues on this idea or this thought, and then we're going to come back here, and we're going to kind of see and discuss how this one thing is the central thing. right? This one thing is the key thing. Um, so much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What are the oracles of God? I want us to think about this. What is, what is the oracles of God, somebody? Hmm? The Word of God? Prophecies of God? The commands, the law of God? Yeah, so, so the oracles of God that he is referring to here is what we would consider Old Testament. Right, The scripture that had been penned up to this point in time that the Jews and this new blossoming church both held to a scripture. Right? Both the Jews and the early church when they referred to scripture up to the point that it was started to be written when, when they referred to scripture, they were reading from the same text that the Jews were, were reading from. Right, and we're going to see. We're going to bring out from that a, a key point about the advantage of the Jews. Right, so the oracles that he's speaking of here is the Word of God, and I want us, as we dig into this and as we think about this, I, I want us so so often times, church, we take this for granted whenever i read this whenever whenever i ask what was the advantage of the jews and this is what i read to begin with the jews were entrusted with the oracles of god how many of you and i want you to be just dead honest how many of you when you think about that you know uh, that's cool but it doesn't seem like that much how, how many of you 
I mean, if we were, if we were honest, probably most of us in the way that we live our lives and the way that we address this book, or might I say don't address this book, treat the Word of God as though it's just some common thing. Right? We don't see it as the very words of life. Right? Or we would treat it with more respect. And I'm not talking about like not letting it collect dust. I'm talking about having that joker so marked up that we're having to buy another one because our ink's running through, because we can't stay out of the book, because all we do is dig into it, because we value it like a treasure. We mine it for gold daily. How many of us do that? How See, we're not going to raise our hands whenever I say how many of us find God's Word common, but then when I say that you have the very words of God in your hands, and you don't open it, except for maybe once or twice, or, you know, I feel good if I got three days in with it this week, or if I, you know, maybe read a verse here or there. We treat it as... A common and ordinary thing. So that when we read this verse, we don't see that as a major advantage of them. They had the very Word of God. Do you see that? Just like we do. Just like we do. Clearly, they took it for granted in many ways because they've skewed it and misused it. And Paul now through this book is trying to do a work to kind of bring them back in line with what was being said or what was being done. They were given the Word of God. What what else? Let's go over to uh, chapter 9 where Paul uh, addresses some of these some of the other things. Verse 4 and 5 of chapter 9. Paul says, They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The last couple of questions that we're going to cover are really the, the one about what about the unfaithful? What about the falling away of the Jews? He spends 9, 10, and 11 really focusing in heavily on that one question. Dealing with unfaithfulness, and if unfaithfulness can cause God unfaithfulness, right? Like if, if a man is unfaithful, will God likewise be unfaithful? Or, stated another way, if God makes a covenant with you, and you break the covenant, will God remain faithful, or must He remain faithful in His promise according to that same covenant? Right? So that's the question. Where does the faithfulness matter? Right? Where's the value, uh, where's the value there? So Paul's going to spend some time in detail uh, digging, digging into that. Um, so let's go. Let's go back uh, again, and let's look at these two. These two questions that come out of this, relating to, uh, relating to God's word. So the the first question here is, what advantage has the Jew? And I want you to think about that up to the point that we've got in the text this far. What question or uh, what advantage do the Jews have over everyone else? What advantage? So we've stated that they had God's oracles, God's word. What advantage would that provide for the Jew? Right? What kind of advantage can we find in that? It would seem as though they maybe missed out on it. If we're having to address these questions now, then it would seem as though what should have been an advantage was not an advantage to them. What I want us to find out is that there's a beautiful thing that we're going to see as we dig into what is the advantage that we can see that the advantage lies not in the Jews, but in what was housed within the words of God. 
What is in God's Word? What does God do time and time and time again throughout His Word? He shows us Christ. Yes. So God made a promise to the Jews, right? God made a promise to the patriarch of patriarchs, Abraham. I want us to, I want us to go and, and, and look. I, I wasn't intending on doing this. Um, Dustin covered some of it this morning, but we'll, we'll go ahead and, and just kind of flip over to Genesis Chapter 12, we're going to start in 12.1. I'm just going to read. Now go from 12, read from 12, chapter 12, all the way through chapter 21, right? Read all of that if you really want to dig into what's going on here. But I want us to read some of the promises that's being made here. So the advantage of the Jew that we're going to be digging in and we're going to be trying to figure out here, it's not found in themselves as though they themselves had an advantage over you. And that was the problem. Because God makes a promise to Abraham that because of this skewed, sinful view was not completed until Christ. Right? So the promise that He makes to Abraham, He knows that Abraham and his people will never finish it, so He sends the Messiah through His people to finish it Himself. The advantage friends, is Christ, right? So the advantage is Christ. Promises made by a man or by God who will never fail in keeping His promises. And this is what we find. Chapter 12, let's start in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go back and read, you're not going to find Abraham going out to find the Lord at any point here. The Lord comes to Abraham and the Lord says this to him. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and to those who dishonor you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the Jews we're supposed to fulfill this. And a Jew did. That's Christ. Right? God calls the Jews through Abraham, continually through the descendants of Abraham, to fulfill this great promise. Or God is going to fulfill it through them. To bless the Jews and the Jews only. To bless who? All of mankind. This is the promise being made. Do you see this? Do I need to read this again? Like God somehow needed to backtrack. Like it wasn't embedded from the very beginning that He was going to bless all the earth through the work that He was going to do in Abraham. And He doesn't say, Abraham, 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 you're going to make your name great. Abraham, you're going to make your nation great. He's saying, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. bless you, And to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth might be blessed, could be blessed. They will be blessed. And God makes promises. And God keeps promises. What was the advantage of the Jew? They had the Word of God. And in the Word of God, they had the promises of God. Not that they themselves would fulfill it, but that God Himself would fulfill it. Right? God is the promise maker. God is the promise keeper. If you go on to your offspring, and I'm, and these are just, if you were to go from chapter 12, verse 1, where we started, and just look along the way at every point where it says, and God appeared and said, I'm just going to be reading those off. I'm not going to read the verses to you. Like I said, it's from 12 to 21. Uh, your offspring, I will give this land. This is God speaking. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see. I will give 
to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. God's making some big promises here too. If you were to look through this, Abraham has no children at this point, and God is making promises to him and to his descendants. And God continues on. Verse or It's in chapter 15 now. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. This man shall not... And I'm just kind of bouncing around here uh, to the places God's talking. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. Look towards heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. So shall your offspring be. And in verse 6, Abraham believed God and was counted righteous because of his belief in God. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Know that for certain your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they will come out with a great possession. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet completed. To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephraim. Man, a lot of some big words in there. Uh, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, <laughs> and the Jebusites. I should have just skipped that part altogether. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. This is chapter 17, where the covenant is laid out. And we're going to use this to kind of bridge into that. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for the everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be cir- circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. It is not the covenant. It is a sign of the covenant. So what value? I want to I ask you now, we're kind of stepping to the second question. What is the value of circumcision? For the Jew asking this question, they're tying their identity up heavily in this. What is the value of circumcision? Okay. When you say it's representative of the covenant, what you're saying is, is that its value is not in and of itself, but it points to something of value, right? It represents something of value. God said it's a sign of the covenant, right? Let's read that again. You shall be circumcised in the flesh and foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Who made the covenant? Who made the promises? What value is there in circumcision? Yes, yeah, so circumcision foreshadow is a foreshadowing of what happens with the Holy Spirit. Mom, you are exactly right. That if circumcision did not have the promise backing it, it would be of no value. Circumcision has no value in and of itself. So that when you look at circumcision, you value that as a people, you miss out on the promise for which that was holding or pointing to. Right? So the question is not what value is in circumcision. 
And this is ultimately why he, he answers this with the oracles of God. Because if you dig into this, this is me reading the same book that the Jew ought to be reading. And when they read this, should they not see the same truth that we see? That a God makes promises and a God keeps promises. And it is not the working of the Jews. It is in no way the law and them keeping the law. God made a promise to Abraham. And the question is, what if they're unfaithful? Will God be unfaithful? We, we say no, and we should say no. But do we live like that? Christians, do we, do we live as... Uh, we don't. We don't. We live, many of us, as though... Everything hinges on what I do. Right? Go back to Abraham. Living where he's living. God coming to him and making a promise. And nowhere in there did he say, but if. Or only if. God made a promise and made the... I'm going to flip back and I'm going to read it again. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Not just making His name great for no arbitrary reason, but making His name great so that He will become a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And this is the start of what will become the nation of Israel. And it does not start with Abraham doing something to warrant the love of God. It starts by God choosing Abraham because he's going to do something great and amazing through this family. And that something great and amazing is Christ. The advantage of the Jew, Christ. The value of circumcision is that it points to a promise. The promise is Christ. What value? Christ. The ultimate Value. So now we come to the next question. Um, let's continue reading in the text here. Does or or verse three? What if some were unfaithful? Now, when he says some here, this is just slightly understating the issue, right? When he says some, some's a whole lot, right? Some's a whole lot where he's going to have to address this in in a major section. Of the book. <laughs> right? So he says, what if some were unfaithful? What if some? Here's the question that he literally moves quickly into is, what if all men were unfaithful? What if all men were liars? Would God still be true? Does God's faithfulness hinge on our faithfulness? This is a major question that it's sometimes easy to say. Like, we can answer no. We know the answer is no. When I say, does God's faithfulness to you depend on your faithfulness to Him? We say no. But then we live and walk like we say yes. And that should not be so. That should not be so. Because though all men were liars, God is true. And this is what Scripture tells us here. What if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? There is a huge, huge, huge implication to this. This is going to get explored more fully and more deeply as we dig into this book. So I want you to start thinking about this now. Now, Y'all all are from a Baptist church and you've been conditioned to you know the answer to this, right? That our, our faithfulness to God in no way affects His faithfulness 
to us. But I want you to dig in and I want you to think about that. Because when we get further along in this, Paul does decide to spend three whole chapters, what I would consider to be the meatiest chapters of this book, dealing with this question, right? The faithfulness of God to His promise. Because that's ultimately what it comes down to. The value is in the promise. The advantage in the promise. Men are unfaithful. Does that mean, therefore, that God will be unfaithful? Or that God will now say, never mind. The plan that I had started with Abraham, you know, y'all have messed that up and I'm going to restart somewhere. I'm going to do it a little bit differently. I'm going to do it better this next time. Right? Is that what's going on? Because if not, why then would such a large majority of the Jews who had this book, who could have read, who it was their entire purpose. You can, friends, you can read the Old Testament today because they were faithful in keeping it. Right? Do you get that? Like a lot of times we're like, man, they must have never paid any attention to it. Every word that you read in the Old Testament, the Jews took care of. Right? Do you get that? Do you understand that? That when you read an Old Testament manuscript, that it was copied and copied and copied for years by Jews who were entrusted with it. And this is where we should see again and and get this idea that you can have a whole lot of knowledge and a whole lot of information in your head and you can still miss it by a long shot. So let your desire not be that you would just abound in knowledge alone, but let your desire be a passion for God. And if you have a passion for God, fueled by the Holy Spirit, I'm going to tell you, you're going to be in it. You're going to be in it. Let God push you deeper into this book, deeper into His Word. So I want you all to chew on that question for a couple of weeks because we are going to address it again. He answers it quickly in verse 4, by no means. So does their unfaith or does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. In fact, God would be true, even though everyone were a liar. Now I want us to stop and I want us to think about this. For a second. What this means is that the truth of God stands even if everyone stands against it. Do you see that? I want you to know that. It seems as though our nation and our culture is going in such a direction that if you don't get that, you're going to feel very alone in the near future. Right? I want to put out a little warning for you that if you're not in God's Word, Christian, you better get into it. Because we are not far off from persecution. And you will not stand if you're ashamed of God, ashamed of His Word. The day is at hand. And you may, man alive, it, it, this, is a, this is a powerful truth though. That if you were to stand alone and it were to only be God standing with you, the truth of God's Word stands. Do you, do you get this? Like I, don't, I see what's going on around us. I see what's going on in our culture. And y'all may believe it or not, y'all may not believe it, but if I die or I lose my job or whatever, let it come, man. And I, I want every one of you to be able to say the same exact things. Because if you cannot, then you're living for something that we've dealt with in the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities. My God, how many men are cowardly men who seek things of the world and they send their wives to church by themselves? Tell your husbands that I said it. 
We need men who will be men who will stand alone if it needs to be because they know that the work of God will not fail them. If all men stand against it, God is true. God is true. That you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Quoting from some Old Testament scripture here, Paul is showing us again this truth that he's already said that God, that though everyone might be a liar, that God will be true, that God will be faithful, that if you put God to the test, God's words will be justified by God's actions. That when God makes promises, God keeps promises. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? So when you're going through trials and storms, do you believe that, hold to that, cling to that? Do you know that God is unfailing? That it cannot happen that He fails? It is not who He is. It is not who He is. God cannot fail. More specifically, He cannot fail you. He cannot fail you. And He does not leave you out high and dry. Though you would Him. Though you would be one of those liars. God is true. Christian, though you walk so far, God's promise holds for you. Come home. Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Paul here in parentheses says, I speak in a human way. He wants to distance himself from this idea because he sees, even as he pins it, how foolish of a thought it is. Right? I want to read it again and then you notice the parentheses and Paul's like, look, this ain't what I'm thinking. This ain't what I'm believing. Though some say that he believed that or some say that he said that and he mentions that later on in the text. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, right? God's righteousness is clear when it's set against the backdrop of our unrighteousness. There's no question as to his character when you examine our character. Right? Then how, if that would be the case, because that seems to make God look better. Right? If you can look at me and see more through my sin about how good and kind and merciful God is, then it would seem as though you couldn't have seen that without me. So the question that I would have then, from a human standpoint, and Paul says that here, is why would God blame me? I make Him look good. Right? That's what it... That's, that's a human way of addressing this problem of unrighteousness. Because you look at it and you see, you can see the goodness of God even more clearly when you see the depravity of man. That seems like a good thing. Is not seeing more of God's goodness and kindness and mercy and love and charity, is that not a good thing? And if it is a good thing, how can you blame me when I'm part of the ones making Him look good? Right? That's, that's the idea that Paul's addressing here. And he says, I speak in a human way. By no means. So he, you know, parentheses there. I speak in a human way. And then he, starts, he answers quickly in verse 6. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? Right? God in His very character must be good, must be holy, must be just. Otherwise, He would not Himself be worthy of judging. Right? So the very definition of God would nullify this idea or thought about who He is. But He addresses it twice. Right? The probably large majority of the text that we're covering tonight is this question because He words it twice. Right? 
But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous? To inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, do you see how He steps it down one more? Because this is what we're really thinking. We're not thinking about, well, what if the whole world makes Him look good because the world's bad? Is it, Can I justify my own sinful living by the fact that I make God look good? Right? And that just goes further on to show the depravity of our own hearts when we would think in such a way. Verse 7, but if my lie, but if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And here's the question. This is where that human sinful thought process leads to. And why not do evil that good may come? Why not? Why not just keep on doing evil? Because as I do evil, good comes from it. Right? Why not sin more so that God's grace might abound more? Who doesn't want more of God's grace? Right? Be careful with human thinking. And that's what they were accused of. I want you to, I want you to get something as we hit this next part of this is that as and, and y'all have heard me say maybe a time a message or so back i think it was maybe even last time where i said that that your purpose for living is not living to satisfy the mandates of the law but living a life full of the holy spirit does that not in some ways seem as though i'm telling you not to worry about the law does it not If, if the Holy Spirit leads you, then you're not going to be led by the Spirit to something that the Spirit does not love and cherish. So you will not be led by the Spirit to sin, right? Yes, yeah, so the spirit, the spirit leads to life. And the law leads us to condemnation. And we're going we're gonna to find that out more next week when we kind of wrap up this section on the problem of sin. But I want you to see here in the last part of chapter uh, 3, verse 8, Paul says, "...and why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying." Right? So the gospel that he was being preached was being manipulated by the sinful hearers of the, of the hearers of this as to say that Paul is trying to give people a license to sin by grace. Right? He's going to touch on this more as we dig into the book. Right? Because grace does not give you a license to sin. Right? It changes your desires. And that's the problem. Sin has corrupted our desires so that we think these kind of thoughts instead of thoughts that please God. And the Holy Spirit is working within us new lives to shed off these old ways of thinking, these old ways of living. And he says to end uh, this particular section, their condemnation is just. Verse 9, we're just going to kind of read it. Um, we're going to pick up here next week and finish up this section on the problem of sin. What then? So Paul has covered the problem of sin from both the Gentiles' point of view, the Jews' point of view. He's shown that sin suppresses truth, whether you have a little of it or whether you have a lot of it, and that it's not the mere knowledge of the truth of God that changes the sinner so that they don't desire sin, but that something must happen. The Spirit changes the heart. He says in chapter 2.29, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Right? So he's already kind of anticipating where he's going with the gospel message that he's preaching here. So now he's kind of getting back on track from this diversion to answer the Jews in verse 9. What then? Are the Jews any better off? So they had an advantage, which was God's Word. God's Word had the promise. Right? There was value in the Jew because value itself came forth from them in Christ. 
Right? Some of them were apparently left out. We're going to address that in a future study. So now then, that they had an advantage and that there was value, what then? Are the Jews any better off? No. Not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. The problem is not knowledge. The problem is sin. You, before Christ, were a slave to sin. Sold in bondage to sin. We speak much of freedom and free will, but I want to tell you that before Christ, you were more a slave. You were a slave to sin. Free to sin. And you did it abundantly. And Christ has set you free from sin in many different ways. In many different ways. Um, we will close in prayer and in uh, worship. Um, next week, we'll, like I say, we'll wrap up this section on the problem of sin. I pray that you would be praying for me ahead of this. There's some intense stuff coming up. Um, again, Paul is going to quote um, some Old Testament text here that carries some very, very, very weighty um, truth in it. So I just pray that you would pray for me as I prepare uh, to, to preach uh, this text, that I would preach it boldly, clearly. Um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this day for your many wonderful blessings in life. I, I thank you. You are so holy and you are so good. Uh, you are so kind to us. Uh, we so often take for granted uh, the goodness and the kindness and the mercy that you show us. I pray, God, for us as individuals that we would be fueled by your Holy Spirit and have a passion for your word that we would dig deep into your word or that we would not uh, put it up on a shelf or that it would never be something that we, we see as, as common or ordinary or that we would see it for the treasure that it is that we can know you and that we can uh, be led in truth by your Holy Spirit through this word or that, that your truth coupled with the power of the Holy Spirit has a transforming power on us as individuals uh, as a church body, that you would use it uh, through the preaching of your word, through the daily study of the members of this church in a way that would uh, shape us and transform us. Lord, that we would be bold, that we would not just be a church who was uh, satisfied with coming and sitting on a pew or in chairs or doing nothing, but that we would be uh, a people who were, who were busy encouraging one another, lifting one another up in prayer that we would be coming here to be equipped by you, by your teachers, by your preachers, so that we could go out into this world, whether it be into our families, whether it be into our workplaces, or into our schools, or just into the community in general, and that we would live lives there that would be transforming for others. Lord, that we would, that you would grant us as a church the beautiful gift of being used for your service, that promise that you made to Abraham so long ago, it will be fulfilled. And it is being fulfilled even today. Lord, I pray that the hearers of Your Word tonight, that Your Holy Spirit would prick hearts where needed, that it would encourage where needed, that it would make bold where needed. Lord, that in any place that I would have failed or fallen short in representing some truth, I pray that You would Convict me and show me and lead me, Lord, that I would speak uh, as clearly and as truthfully your word as you, uh, as you enable me and allow me. Lord, I, I thank you that uh, even though I'm not there yet, that you are leading me, that you are leading us closer and closer to your holiness, that you are leading us as a church. Lord, I believe, Lord, I believe that you are leading us to places that we never anticipated. Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you that we would all be lazy liars that 
you are faithful anyway. That we would see that the value and the advantage is not found in us, but it's found in our Savior. And that we would shout that from the rooftops. Lord, that we would be unashamed of it. Lord, we are living in a place that is steadily moving away from You and that we would be anchors for our country, that we would be immovable for Your glory and for their lives. Lord, what if the Jews had gone out? And what if the church didn't? But I know we will because You will not fail in what You have set forth. Let us believe that. Let us trust in that. Let us lift our swords high. And let us run this race till death. Because death is lost. It's sting. It's in Christ's name. For His glory. Amen.